You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. I'm listening to a podcast called Who Killed Mars Hill? Anybody else been listening to that podcast? It's, uh, it's very timely. Um, it is uh, all about toxic leadership. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more later on. But just so you know, right now, it's, it's all about um, the kind of leadership in American evangelicalism that Peter is speaking directly against in this passage, which is why it's timely. Um, Peter is directly speaking against the kind of leadership that is demonstrated in that, um, that podcast. Uh, and um, it's affected some of us here. Um, some of us have grown up in churches with that kind of leadership. Um, Peter calls it um, shameful gain in verse 2. Uh, he says that an elder should not be doing it for shameful gain, but eagerly. Uh, not to benefit himself, but to serve um, Peter also says, not domineering, not domineering, in verse 3, over those in your charge, but being examples. So, um, you know, what, what you see at Mars Hill uh, is, is 
from the empire, I would say. And we talk about the contrast between the empire and the kingdom a lot in this church. And I've said this before many times, but the empire is like a pyramid where people are trying to get to the top and get a lot of people underneath them, that support them, that look up to them, that serve them. That is the way the, the, the empire works. And then the kingdom, it just flips that completely on its head. And in the kingdom, your goal is to get lower and to go down and disappear and serve and get more people above you and to disadvantage yourself for their advantage. And you see that radical ethic of the kingdom in verse 5 where Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, both leader and led, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. That's the leadership of the kingdom. So empire leadership, dominance, acquisition, and then kingdom leadership, humility, being an example, being a shepherd. And again, I would say um, a lot of people's deconversion stories and deconstructions of their faith come out of experience with toxic uh, leadership, toxic church leadership. So first, the empire. Um, The word for domineering in verse 3 is literally to lord it over them. To lord it over them. And this is the thing that Jesus said to Peter 25 years earlier when Peter asked Jesus if he could be his, uh, his right-hand man. Uh, Peter was essentially saying, I want to be number one. Or I want to be number two after you in the kingdom. And then, uh, and then Jesus said, well, now that's how the Gentiles operate. That's how the people who are outside of my kingdom, that's how the world operates. In the world, the, uh, the, their great ones lord it over them. They dominate them. They domineer. Uh, their, their great ones exercise uh, authority over them. Uh, and a command control kind of authority. This is what um, James, the brother of Jesus, calls uh, selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. When he's critiquing false teachers, James says these are, are people who have filled with selfish ambition and bitter jealousy because they're fiercely competitive with one another. And Peter says this is shameful game. It's shameful because it's so, uh, so opposed, it's so grotesque in light of the, of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's shameful that you would be trying to gain from your people instead of serving your people in the kingdom. And yet so many pastors, so many preachers, so many clergy are trying to gain from their position. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean financial gain. It could simply be, you know, who are my followers? How many people are listening to me? Uh, how can I build up my platform? It's treating people as numbers. How many do you have in your church? It's treating people like abstractions. Um, like, I've got a church that does this. We, you know, we're, we have this kind of ministry. And a lot of times pastors talk in these abstractions instead of thinking about people, individual souls, eternal souls. It's treating people almost like they're pawns in your hands. And this is, this is what you see in, in this uh, story about Mars Hill Church. So in 2011, um, and I, what I'm saying is not gossip. This is in the podcast. Uh, this has been, this is on the news. Okay, this is well-documented stuff. Uh, but in 2011, uh, Mars Hill Church was the most cutting-edge megachurch in America and probably in the world. So it's in downtown Seattle, and there are 15,000 people in this church. And that's back in a time when you didn't have that many people in churches at all. 15,000 people in 2011. Uh, huge church, and a lot of young people, uh, a lot of artists, a lot of musicians, very cool people, very hip people. 
uh, a lot of people who, were, who did not grow up in the church. And this whole movement was led by this man named Mark Driscoll, who is he's brilliant. He's a genius. He's a great communicator. He's very bold. He's very outspoken. He's very willing to push the boundary. He's very funny, um, almost like a comedian. And uh, not only did he start this giant church, um, they, plant, they, they planted churches all over the world. He started this Acts 29, uh, Acts 29 church planting network, and there are hundreds of young pastors out there influenced by Mark Driscoll. And um, one lady in this podcast uh, even said that she thought that the only reason Trump could have ever gotten elected by evangelicals is because Mark Driscoll had prepared the ground. Someone who was mocking people, a bully, that evangelicals were already used to that in Mark Driscoll. And so there's enough of a base out there that evangelicals kind of overlooked that part of Donald Trump. Well, in, in, in 2014, um, Mark Driscoll was removed from the pulpit uh, after multiple allegations of misconduct. And almost within, within weeks, the church closed, which is unheard of. That as soon as a pastor would be removed, the church would just completely close, which shows how completely it was built on his ego and his personality. It was a cult of personality. And uh, he was very arrogant. He said that he had nothing to learn from anyone uh, with a church under 10,000. He had nothing to learn from them. Um, he was a bully. Uh, he screamed at people. He mocked people. Um, he said, if you, if you plant a church near me, I'll tear it down brick by brick. He said that to one guy who's a church planter who's trying to come to Seattle. Uh, he was a narcissist. He said, I don't think you realize how important I am to someone who was once questioning him. He fired his first administrative assistant for, uh, for suggesting he might need some accountability. Not only did he fire her, he called her a heretic. He tried to put her under church discipline. And he was abusive. Uh, probably most frightening of all, what he would say, he would tell wives in the congregation what they had to do to please their husbands. It was very graphic. It was very disgusting. And that's when you realize this man was not just kind of a joke. He was cruel. He, he was uh, malevolent. And yet God did amazing things through him. No doubt about that. There's amazing stories of redemption in this church. But he got to a place where um, really evil things were happening there. And I, and I mention that because it, this, is, this is tolerated in America. Um, I don't know as much about... You know, context overseas, but um, megachurches all over America, there are narcissistic leaders everywhere. Um, and it's, it's because there's something about us that likes empire leadership. We like to be part of something dominant and huge and growing. And like, we're going to change the world. We're going we're gonna to take this city. He often said, we're going to take Seattle. He used a lot of military language. We're going to take Seattle. And I, I say this... Um, because uh, it's a warning to me. It's, every pastor should listen to that podcast because there is something in all of us who are pastors that's a little bit crazy for doing this job. And uh, if it goes unchecked, it's going to lead to this very attitude right here that you see in that podcast. And I see it in myself indirectly. You know, if you ask me, I would say I do not want to be a church, a pastor of a large church like that. Uh, I, I do not want to ever become anything like Mark Driscoll. I don't want to be famous. But then I betray my heart when I get jealous of, of people like that. You know, when, when someone comes to town and plants a church that grows quickly, if I feel any jealousy or envy about that, that obviously shows that there's something in me that wants to be like that. 
I had a guy, uh, I, had a, I had lunch with a guy on Thursday um, who I want, I would love for y'all to meet. His name's Mike Connors. He, he runs Insight in Greensboro, which is a, uh, it's a addiction recovery for, uh, for kids in Greensboro. Amazing man. Uh, I love what he's doing there. Um, and uh, he said he, he emailed about 100 pastors. Just sent an email to all these pastors saying, can I get together with you? And only three responded. And, um, and one of the three I was very sad to hear was, was the pastor of Elevation. And I, I have, if some of you know me, and I, I have spoken negatively of, of Elevation Church, which is coming out of Charlotte. And there are things they do there that, uh, that I do not like, but, but it just cut me when, when this guy, Mike Connors, told me, you know, the Elevation, they're really on board with us. Like, they really support uh, youth and recovery. They're not scared about mental health. Uh, and it just made me realize I... I so much wanted to dislike that church uh, that it made me mad to hear that. And, and so it shows me that inside of me, there's some of that same empire, right? That, that shows that the empire is inside of me. And I think the question we should be asking ourselves is, um, you know, do you see that in yourself? In whatever context you're called to lead, we all have some place where we're leading. We're having influence on other people. We're in a position of leadership. And so... Is the way that you're leading uh, for any kind of dominance, domineering, or gain? Are you doing it to gain? And the people that lead you. What about the people that lead you? What about, what about the spiritual leaders? You know, me, um, the staff, uh, the, the elders, the servant leaders. What about the way that, that we lead? Um, do you see that in us? Because if you do see that in us, you need to speak to us. Because the one thing that could have saved Mars Hill is if some... If a group of people had really confronted them on that, I think that would have, that would have changed everything. But that didn't ever happen. No one ever spoke uh, until it was too late. And so there's an there's a obligation you have if you're a member of this church or even just if you know me or if you know Austin, uh, if you're a friend of ours, just tell us. If you see any of this stuff going on, please tell us. We need to hear that because it's very hard sometimes to see what we're doing. Listen to what God said about the empire leadership in Israel. And it, it snuck into his own people. This is from Ezekiel 34, 2-6. God says, How I hate the shepherds of Israel who care only for themselves. You consume the milk and wear the wool and slaughter the fat sheep, but you do not feed them. You have not encouraged the weary. You have not tended the sick. You have not bandaged the hurt. You've not recovered the straggler. You've not searched for the lost. You've driven them with ruthless severity. So that's the, that's the leadership of the empire. He's trying to gain from the sheep. Consuming, uh, wearing, uh, slaughtering, driving ruthlessly with severity. And all in a posture of getting and building yourself. Now the kingdom leadership is the very thing that Ezekiel wants from these shepherds, which is to encourage the weary, to tend the sick, to bandage the hurt, to recover the straggler, to search for the lost. Uh, that's, that's kingdom leadership, and I want to turn to that now. And just go back to that story where Peter and James uh, come to Jesus and say, we want, to be, we want to be at your right and left hand in the kingdom. When the kingdom comes, we want to be there. We want to be one and two. And Jesus tells them, uh, that is not how I lead. Uh, that, that is the way the empire leads, the Gentiles lead that way, but in my kingdom, 
Uh, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And the greatest of all must be the slave of all. That's the word he uses. The lowest level of slavery in the ancient world. Whoever would be the greatest must be the slave of all. Because even I, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's kingdom leadership. Uh, it's, it's downward mobility. It's descending and getting under as many people as you can and disappearing and lifting them up and blessing them and, and disadvantaging yourself to advantage others. Uh, verse 5 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I love how Peter says that at the end of the section. He quotes that proverb that wherever there is someone who is arrogant and domineering and working for shameful gain... Selfishly ambitious, God opposes them. No, I will not tolerate that. That is not who I am. I will not have that. He opposed Mark Driscoll. You know, praise the Lord. And any narcissistic leader like that, he opposed it. But to the, to the humble, to those, if, if he had just repented, if Driscoll had ever repented, he would have given, poured out grace. God opposes the proud, but he pours out grace upon the repentant and the humble. Notice how Peter was so changed. When Jesus rebuked him that day 25 years earlier, Peter uh, does not feel any need to use some kind of exalted title like, the, like he's the Pope or your eminence or head of the church. He doesn't say, I am the first and the greatest of the apostles. He says simply, uh, a fellow elder. I exhort you um, as a fellow elder in verse 1. Simply one of many. And I, I love that about the Presbyterian system of government. That there is no one above the elder. The, the elder is only one uh, office of rule, which is the elder office. And the, and the elders are appointed by the congregation. And there's no hierarchy. Of, they're, they're all fellow elders. And Peter says, I am simply one of the fellow elders. I get one vote. That's all I get. I'm a fellow elder. And when I come into a room, people do not need to stand at attention when I walk into a room. Um, if somebody is tried to stand at attention when Peter walked in the room he said sit down I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ that's not that way we do that here so elders are called to this countercultural humility which are examples of the upside down kingdom he says in verse 3 being examples to the flock flipping over the pyramid schemes of the empire if, if we are not salt and light if we're not different from the world then we're of no use at all we're just going to blend right in no one even know we're around. But the Jesus revolution is all about humility. It's a word in Greek that, um, that the Greeks hated. It's a word the Roman Empire hated. Um, it's a word that means uh, insignificance and uh, poverty and weakness and lowliness and servitude. It's, it, to the empire, it was a slur. The word is typonos in Greek, and that word in the empire... Uh, was a slur. You, you would never want to be called someone who's a typonos, humility. But Jesus uh, latches onto that word and he says, in my kingdom, um, that's the word I want. He completely changes the language. He, he created a revolution of language where he, he took that word typonos and he took it from the, uh, the greatest vice into the greatest virtue and said, my people are people of humility. And so if you meet somebody uh, who is who's not grown up in the church, who's, you know, secular humanist. Uh, a lot of people in my family are this way. If you, if you meet somebody like that who values humility, and most of them do, a lot of people who are um, 
who were not believers, they, nevertheless, they would value humility quite a bit. And you should tell them, man, you're, you're really following Jesus well because you, are, you have completely bought into the way that uh, he turned the world upside down. Um, you know, you're, you're part of the Jesus revolution because you are living a life of humility that no one until the coming of Jesus had ever commended before. Uh, it's a completely new way of looking at the world. Clothe yourselves, verse 5. All of you, both the leaders and the led, with humility, with this typonus. And the, the root word uh, for clothe yourself, the word clothing, is the, the apron of the lowest servant in the household. The lowest servant. Clothe. This is Peter, who could have taken the position of highest authority, and he is saying, I will wear the apron of the slave. Um, this is, this is the, the same word that was used of the garment that Jesus took when he washed his disciples' feet. I mean, imagine the King of kings and the Lord of lords coming to his people. And one of the last things he does is he washes the feet of the disciples. Even the lowest servant in the household would not do that. And so Peter is asking us, you know, what, what if pastors led that way? What if, what if pastors of the church in America led with that kind of clothing? the apron of a servant? What if a mother led her household with that kind of clothing? And what if a businesswoman or a businessman would lead uh, their business that way? Older siblings, those of you who are the oldest sibling or have younger siblings, they look up to you. The younger siblings look up to you. And what if you were a leader in this way of showing humility and getting below your siblings and lifting them up and noticing them and attending to their needs. And, and the husbands. You know, I believe that uh, Ephesians 5 says that husbands are called to lead the family. And I know that's controversial, but um, I know one thing that does not mean is that husbands are smarter or wiser or more competent than their wives. I have met plenty of wives that are smarter and more competent and that can make a lot more money than their husbands. And um, they could get a lot more things done than their husbands. So it's certainly not saying that husbands are the right ones for the job. That's not what it's saying at all. What, what, what Paul says is husbands die to yourselves. Lead the home by dying to yourselves. And giving up your rights. And wearing the apron of a slave. And, and serve your wives. Listen to your wives. Learn from your wives. Anticipate their needs. That's how leadership is done in the kingdom of God. So verse 2, he says to the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. Instead of domineering, instead of shameful gain, be a good shepherd. And a good shepherd was very aware of everything going on in the flock. The good shepherd knew every one of his sheep, and he knew them by name. And he called them by name. They had this amazing relationship between the shepherds and the sheep. And so Peter says, uh, exercise oversight. That's, a, that's the word that a shepherd would have thought of for the way that he was looking out over the flock and knew them all. And he, he was very aware when one would go away. If, if one of the sheep was moving away, the shepherd would leave all the rest and go for that one. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. A good shepherd uh, did not drive the sheep from behind with a whip. That's not the way that a good shepherd would lead. A good shepherd would walk in front of the sheep and would call backwards 
call them by name and call them to follow him. And so uh, that's why John 10, 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He calls us forward. He doesn't drive us from behind. doesn't domineer us. And a good shepherd is in front of all the sheep because when the predator comes to kill the sheep, the lion, the bear, the wolf, the shepherd is there to take the hit. The shepherd is always right there willing to sacrifice the shepherd's life for the sheep. And that's why Peter says we are witnesses of the sufferings of Christ. In the kingdom of God, the leaders are witnesses to the sufferings of Christ. I mean, domineering, shameful, that's totally incompatible with being a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And so Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And when he said that, he was referring back to Ezekiel 34. Because after the Lord says, uh, the shepherds of Israel are all completely corrupt and toxic. Then God says, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep. And I will seek them out and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And when Jesus came, he was saying, I am that shepherd. I am the shepherd of Ezekiel 34. He says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and my sheep know me and I lay down my life for my sheep. And that is the definition of what spiritual leadership looks like. The the Lord who would leave the 99 come after the one straggler. The Lord who would leave the throne room of God to come and